Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. Will body cameras change anything? At-home COVID tests are currently banned by Health Canada. And are protesters justified in toppling a statue in Montreal? All that coming up. Let's get to it. Alberta's Premier says he'd be happy to give a toppled Montreal statue a new home. Jason Kenney says a statue of Sir John A. Macdonald, which was targeted by protesters at a march over the weekend, could be installed on the grounds of the legislature in Alberta. The Montreal protesters knocked over and defaced that monument as rallies were held in a number of cities to to demand that police services be defunded and reformed. The Prime Minister had a press conference this morning, and he spoke about this. Here is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau this morning speaking about the incident. But we are uh, a country of laws, uh, and we are a country that needs to respect uh, those laws, even as we seek to improve and change them. And that, those kinds of acts of vandalism are not advancing uh, the path towards greater justice and equality in this country. Now, we've seen following that uh, people on either sides of the spectrum trying to use these, uh, these elements as a way of furthering debates. I'm more interested uh, in uh, using the real frustrations that people have as motivations to continue to make the big changes necessary. That is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau this morning talking about the defacing and destruction of a monument, a statue to Sir John A. Macdonald in Montreal over the weekend. How do we grapple with the legacy of Sir John A. and commemorations to him? To talk about it, I have two perspectives. One from Lisa Kirby, who is CEO and president of Blackbird Strategies and a communications expert. And the other, Senator Linda Frum, Canadian author and journalist and conservative member of the Senate of Canada since 2009. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Nice to be here. Lisa, I will begin with you. What should be done in places like Kingston or Picton, Ontario, where there are statues to Sir John A.? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is to ensure that we have uh, Indigenous peoples involved in this conversation. I I don't think that this is up to non-Indigenous people to decide how we commemorate history, particularly when we're talking about somebody uh, such as Sir John A. Macdonald, who enacted, you know, colonial and racist policies that led to many, many lives lost, that led to bringing in residential schools that caused Indigenous peoples to lose their language and their culture. You know, this even for the time, um, Prime Minister Macdonald was considered to be enacting, you know, draconian policies with respect to Indigenous peoples. So I don't think toppling a statue is erasing history. I think this provides us an opportunity to teach accurately our history. Senator Frum, what is your perspective about statues? Should we be thinking about, you know, adding some kind of a different plaque that adds a different perspective that often is lacking from Canadian history books, or is it something else? Well, first of all, Alan, I have to say you've got me a little bit off kilter here because I find myself in extreme agreement with Prime Minister Trudeau and that statement that you ran earlier. Um, you know, Lisa and I may disagree about what the legacy of John A. Macdonald is. To me, he is the founder of the country that I am so proud to live in, so proud to raise my children in. 
a country that I consider to be one of the greatest countries in the world. And there would be no Canada without Johnny McDonald. He does not just belong to one segment of the population. He is the the founding father of the whole country, and, and therefore he is the founding father for all of us. Um, but, you know, for sure, we can do a better job in this country of acknowledging every aspect of our history. And instead of tearing things down, we can we can expand and we can explain more, we can teach more, and we can put up different types of monuments to our history and different have different conversations about it. I'm all for that. But uh, the idea that a violent mob of protesters, not putting it politely, um, you know, gets to decide uh, which pieces of our history are valuable and which piece of our history need to be denigrated, that's just not on for me. But, Senator, certainly you can appreciate that those statues uh, would be a focal point of anger um, uh, from the community. Sure, and, and, and the decapitated statue that fell yesterday is also a focal point of anger for other segments of uh, the community who value our history, who are proud of our country. So when you have disagreements like this, um, that's perfectly legitimate, but you don't settle it with violence. Can I just jump in here for a second? You know, like, let's, can we not frame this as an act of a violent mob and actually talk about the issue? Because I think these are two things that are very separate. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a statue that was defaced of Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And I didn't hear anywhere near the same level of outrage among conservatives in particular. And there's an Indigenous author that I follow on Twitter uh, named Wob Rice, and he had said this, I'll never lament the fallen statue of a colonizer. I'll always lament the lives, languages, and ceremonies lost because of colonialism. So that's why I think we need to be talking more. I mean, I, I went to school in the 70s and 80s. I was never taught this part of our history. So despite the fact that Sir John A. Macdonald founded our country, we're still allowed to say he also enacted policies that murdered people. It was forced starvation. It was famine. You know, he drove them out of their uh, traditional lands and uh, starved them out so he could build a, ra- a railroad. So you know, this isn't about how we remember people in the sense of do we topple statues or not, we need to start talking about how do we accurately reflect this history. And I think we've seen over time, you know, Cindy Blackstock in particular, uh, an Indigenous activist, she's had um, memorial plaques changed to reflect accurately our history. So this should be part of a larger dialogue removed from you know, the violent mob piece because that kind of undermines What's really happening here? What's really happening here is Indigenous peoples are looking for some sort of restorative justice. And I think we need to look toward them first as to how we make right about our past. I'm speaking with Lisa Kirby and Senator Linda Frum. And Senator, to you, can those two narratives coexist, founder of the country and also a person who enacted some pretty heinous laws? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that if you look at almost any heroic figure in history, you're going to have to accept that there is complexity in all human beings. Uh, You know, heroes like Winston Churchill are complex. You know, Washington, Jefferson, 
you know, uh, Lisa mentioned Pierre Elliott Trudeau, not a hero of mine, but someone who has an important airport named after him. He was a an early in his youth. He was a supporter of fascism and a supporter of Vichy France and Franco and Mussolini as, as a Jewish person. That is extremely uncomfortable for me. I don't like it, but I don't, um, you know, I, I, you don't, I'm not lobbying to have the Pierre Elliott Trudeau airport renamed. But frankly, you know, if you follow the logic of the people who think it's okay to tear down statues um, violently, according to mob justice, you would be tearing down virtually every statue in this country and every named um, uh, institution because somebody's going to have a problem with the hero being honored. So I don't think that's how we should tell our differences. And, and history is complicated and complex. But the bottom line for me is that, again, we have this incredible country that we are so privileged to live in. It is a model of peace and tolerance and freedom around the world. And we've got this way because the people who built this country. And if we denigrate their memory, we are, we are denigrating our own country. I will just tell a quick, very quick story. Recently in Toronto, there uh, was a statue defaced uh, at Queen's Park in the uh, north portion of the park. It is a statue of King Edward uh, on top of a horse, and people were upset that this thing was defaced. But if you know the history of the monument itself, it actually was originally in India. And after Indian independence, it was like, well, we don't want this this representative of colonialism here in our city, and so it got shipped here, and now it is in Toronto. And I make the point because at the end of the day, do we not need to re-examine what statues we have and maybe take some down that commemorate something we're not proud of? Quickly to you, Lisa, and then to you, Senator. I completely agree. I think it's time that we take stock of how we commemorate uh, historical figures in society and perhaps what we have to do is take a look as to who we are memorializing and who we are commemorating and also make sure that we have uh, monuments and, and statues if so if, if it need to be of indigenous peoples of, of black men and women who are who have been positive historical figures in their society we, we do need to have a larger conversation about how we do this senator Yes, I agree with that. And I just would argue that we need to do it in a civilized way, in a democratic way. We need to do it, uh, you know, through our uh, elected representatives at our at our city council, at our provincial parliament. And we need to have a consensus on it, an agreement. And we need to do it, uh, you know, in a spirit of goodwill and respect for all people, but certainly not through mob violence. Just Just quickly, if I could add, However, our legislatures and our city councils are not reflective of uh, what Canada looks like. They're predominantly male. They're predominantly white. We need to make sure that those conversations are inclusive and diverse. Lisa Kirby is CEO with president, CEO and president of Blackbird Strategies. And Senator Linda Frum, of course, is a Canadian senator. Thank you to you both so much for joining me. Thank Thanks, you. Alan. Is today a day to celebrate more transparency with the police? Is it a day to say we are moving forward in terms of community relations with the police? You may have heard in the news that the Toronto Police Service today unveiled their body-worn cameras. It's been a six-year process 
in Toronto here as we slowly move towards a deployment of body-worn cameras by the Toronto police. Will those cameras, will those cameras change anything? Well, over the weekend in Little Jamaica, which is Eglinton West, that is that area of town, there was a rally to support black-owned businesses. Uh, And during that rally, police were there on site. Uh, They observed a man jumping up and top up and down on top of a car this man was not part of the rally it, it doesn't appear that anybody who was there who organized it and no they don't know him something happened and police moved in and they tackled him to the ground they tasered him a number of times they tackled him to the ground and they restrained him and of course there is video as you would imagine we all now carry these video recorders in our pockets So there's a lot of people on site, and there's video, and it is disturbing to see. It is disturbing to see this man uh, repeatedly tasered. There's another man that enters the fray, and he is tackled to the ground. Two arrested, seven police officers were injured. And the Special Investigations Unit is investigating. And as I mentioned, there is civilian shot video. It is the kind of video that can easily go viral, and if things had gone differently, it may have incited all kinds of very passionate reaction. Already in the community, there's much concern about it. In the community of Little Jamaica, there's extra police officers over the course of the weekend. There's a much more visible police presence, and some in the community are saying, well, I don't know if that's actually the reaction that we need or that we want. In that one video... With the man on the ground, he is screaming. It is difficult to watch. So now ask yourself this question. If the police officers involved in the takedown of this man and the encounter that led to it and everything else that happened around, if they were all wearing body-worn cameras, would it change anything? Would it change the trust level that the community have in the police? Here is Toronto Police Deputy Chief Shauna Coxon with what police say body-worn cameras will do. The cameras allow for uh, increased accountability because they are objective. They record what is happening in the moment on both sides. And this allows us to see what an officer is going through, which will allow for increased accountability from everything from discipline to also seeing when officers do good work and do the right thing. In addition, more than 90% of the Toronto citizens have said that they want body-worn cameras, and we've done extensive consultation on this. And it does allow for citizens, when they want complaints, and we don't see it often, but we do see it sometimes, and this will help with that as well. At the end of the day, it's an objective measure to show what happened in that moment. That is Toronto Police Deputy Chief Shauna Coxon talking about police-worn body cameras. The difficulty, of course, is will anybody ever see the video that the police have recorded on their body-worn cameras? And that's part of the issue. To talk further about this, I am pleased to welcome back to the program Karima Saad, who's a Toronto lawyer and a regular contributor to this radio program. Hi, Karima. Hello, good afternoon. So police control these cameras, 
and then the state controls what's released. How much faith do you have in body-worn cameras to increase trust from the community in authorities? I, I would say little to none. Um, you know, the, the points that you mentioned are very true, and there are cases reported um, across North America where, oddly, um, all of the either dash cams or body cams get switched off sort of in succession um, right at the pivotal moment. Um, there's also, uh, I just want to challenge the idea that these are objective measures. Um, video, obviously, to some extent is objective, but um, the perspective of the body camera is a very specific perspective and isn't necessarily capturing the full context. And so sometimes the images that, that are released can be misleading. Let's get back to the uh, deputy chief who was asked about the actual footage when it's captured, what happens to it then, especially if there is an encounter between police and a civilian where a civilian is injured. Here's back to the deputy chief. always work with the SIU to have evidence moved over to them as quickly as possible. We've had extensive discussions with them. Our governance has been put in place with discussions with the SIU, the OIPRD, uh, the Information and Privacy Commissioner, you know, uh, the Ontario Human Rights Commission. So we've done extensive consultation on this. Some of it is going to be worked out as we go along, but I can assure you that the release of the body-worn camera footage will happen to the SIU as soon as possible. So that is the Deputy Chief of the Toronto Police, Shauna Coxon, saying that video will be turned over as soon as possible to the Special Investigations Unit. I'm speaking with Karim Asad, a Toronto lawyer. She mentions there the Deputy Chief, the consultations with a number of bodies. Does that increase your confidence in body-worn cameras and how that evidence will be used? I can't say that it does. Uh, the SIU has a terrible track record of holding its or officers accountable. Um, And uh, we've seen this year in in the news cycle stories of um, deaths occurring at the hands of officers and investigations that stall um, several months after the fact. No one's been properly investigated or or spoken to. Um, So, so, no, consultations, cops talking to cops doesn't really inspire faith that, that body cams will be helpful. And Karima, I come back to the point I was making at the beginning of the program, which is there are different narratives that can come out from different pieces of video. And so we have the citizen journalism providing one narrative, but privacy laws in this country means that the police body-worn cameras cannot really be released to the public to say, well, here is a different perspective and to balance out both sides of the narrative. Yes. And I mean, I just um, if we think about body cam footage and the idea now we know what really happened. um, But did that help, for example, Masai Ujiri? Um, Did did the body cam footage that was eventually released and I think clearly shows that he was not the aggressor in that incident? Did that help him? And if we consider his position and the resources that he has access to and the fact that justice will probably not be served um, in, in any meaningful way against the aggressor officer. Uh, what does that mean for, for the rest of us and, and for citizens who are vulnerable and marginalized and, and don't have access to the best lawyers? 
Speaking with Karim Assad, and I want to play one more clip from the uh, deputy chief. This is uh, camera four. This is uh, clip number camera four. This is, uh, Karima, you mentioned about officers actually having the ability to turn the cameras off. That is indeed true. Here is what the deputy chief had to say about that. We will examine those situations as they come up. We know when legally it's permissible and when it's not. And we've built into our governance that if you turn a camera off when you shouldn't have, an officer will lose an automatic uh, penalty of one day as a minimum standard. If they're a supervisor, it's a minimum of two days. That is the uh, deputy chief of the Toronto Police Service, Shauna Coxon, this morning speaking about police body-worn cameras. Uh, and she outlined a number of situations where cameras would have to be turned off or should be turned off. Uh, Karima, when you heard that answer, does that give you more confidence? No, a penalty of, of a one-day or two-day suspension is a drop in the bucket. And, you know, the, the bottom line, in my view, is that body cams or insisting on body cams um, is further resources that need to be allocated to police because there are costs associated. And, and thinking about the incident in, in Little Jamaica this past weekend and the, the 50 or 60 police officers who were dispatched, like those salaries, the money that's going toward that time spent could be reinvested in communities in a direct way instead of going towards an institution that is causing harm to the community. Karima, always great to have you on the program. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. That is Karima Saad, a Toronto-based lawyer, reacting to announcements from the Toronto Police today as they continue their rollout of body-worn cameras. They're saying by next year, a large portion of the Toronto Police Service will indeed have these body-worn cameras. We have some COVID vaccine news today. Novavax Incorporated says it has reached an agreement with the Canadian government to supply up to 76 million doses of its possible vaccine. Novavax is a biotech company that develops vaccines for serious infectious disease. And it said in a statement it expects to finalize advanced purchase agreements as early as the second quarter of 2021. Novavax's vaccine is currently in its second phase of clinical trials. The company plans to begin the third phase in September. But do not get too carried away. Here is Dr. Syria Madad with New York City's healthcare system who says, wait a second, we need time before we know a vaccine is safe and effective. What's really important is making sure that we have a safe and effective vaccine. And those two words mean very different things. And they boil down to really looking at the data. And you can't have good data until a period of time. So you can't fast track safety and and uh, efficacy because you need a certain percentage of time or a certain time frame to collect that information. So typically when we're talking about phase three trials, it could be anywhere from a year to two years. That is Dr. Surya Madad with the uh, New York Healthcare System. In terms of our numbers today, 114 new cases in the last 24 hours. Our testing numbers, 25,000 tests in Ontario have been conducted in the past 24 hours. 13,500 are still pending. And if you take into the fact that we are going to have to wait till we know whether or not any potential vaccine is safe and effective, in the meantime, what we have is testing, testing, testing. 
the more testing, the better. That's what the experts have been saying. So why is it that Health Canada has been saying no to home testing? The Minister of Health, Patty Haydu, uh, tweeting this morning the story in the Globe and Mail that contains a quote from a Health Canada spokesperson saying no to home testing is not accurate and that the the Department or uh, the Department of Health, the Ministry of Health, pardon me, is considering other technologies. But should we all be able to test ourselves in our homes? Can we be trusted with that information? Dr. Suman Chakrabarty is an infectious disease physici- physician at Trillium Health Partners and joins me on the line. Hi, doctor. Hi there. Thanks for having me. What is your perspective on home testing for COVID-19? You know, if this is something that we can show works, I think it would be a great tool to have in our box. When you look, one of the biggest problems with the testing right now is you test, you have to go to the center, you have to wait. Now, there still would be a waiting time, but if you can kind of cut out a lot of that um, you know, travel time, you can get something that's a bit faster and it can at least give you some guidance on what to do next. So if we can get something like this for um, at-home use, I think it's something that could definitely be useful. Uh, Dr. Colin Furness, who is an infection control epidemiologist at U of T, has said that it's a travesty that Health Canada would stand in the way of home testing with saliva or paper tests. Uh, Do you concur? Are you of the same opinion? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I want to obviously know what their uh, their view is. Obviously, from um, uh, Minister Hayde's, uh, uh tweet just now, I'm a little confused exactly what they're saying, but it does sound like they are considering it. And I think that, yes, it would be bad if we didn't at least consider it because it's something certainly that could help in our uh, battle against COVID-19. And especially if it's something we can do uh, in addition to a vaccine to help reduce the amount of transmission in the community, I think we should really look into it. Is there a concern that these at-home tests, if you put this kind of technology in the hands of the general public, that there might be a negative outcome because of that? You know, I think it's something that definitely needs to be considered, but I don't think that's the only reason to not, uh, you know, use it. It's almost like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But I think that the big thing is, with these types of things, we know that there can be some negative uh, unintended consequences, and that's why we're here to educate the public on how to use them and, you know, what the limitations are and what to do next. So I think that if we see something that is good and useful, we can explain to the public, this is how we use it, this is what we do, and this is the guidance that we give. That's our job as healthcare professionals. Are you in support of, of mass testing? You know, the people talk about, well, we should be testing, you know, kids are going into school like every week sort of a thing. And, and then we do sort of mass tests. And if any, anything comes up positive, then we zero in on where the positives are. We have to be careful. Just, the thing is, it depends on the situation. There's certain situations where, yes, uh, you know, testing a big group of people does um, help, and that's the best situation to think of is when you have a high probability of there being cases. So, for example, in uh, Wellington, New Zealand, there's hardly any cases at all, and doing mass testing, you're invariably going to get a bunch of false negatives, and you're doing quarantine you know, for no reason at all. But certain parts of the states where lots of people are infected, I think it would be a useful situation. So you just have to kind of look at the context, you know, know what what the test is saying to you and use it where it's the most effective. If I might pivot into back to school as, you know, that's top of mind for us parents as we start thinking about this, you know, there's so much concern amongst parents because of the class sizes, but you raise a good point there about the number of cases that are actually out there and the amount of community transmission that might actually be going on uh, in Toronto or anywhere in Ontario. That's the, the best point 
point here, and Dr. Michael Ryan from WHO said it best, where the best way to protect everybody in every circumstance is having low community transmission. And we are there in Canada right now, and we are very unlikely to see any kind of explosive growth overnight like you're seeing in places in the States. So that's why, that yes, I totally understand people's trepidation. We're going into something that it's a bit of an unknown, but the, the risk overall is low, and I think that's what protects us, low community transmission. But we should still need to be careful and abide by all the health, uh, the public health principles. I'm speaking with Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, who is with Trillium Health Partners. I began this segment with some news about a potential vaccine uh, and some deal between the Canadian government and Novavax. Uh, can you put that into some perspective for me when we start talking about potential vaccine? Yeah, you know, one of the biggest problems right now with the vaccine is, of course, we have to get a vaccine that works and a vaccine that's safe. But the other thing is the whole uh, issue of distributing the vaccine. That's what we're looking at right now. Just because the vaccine's there doesn't mean we have the doses to distribute to people. So this Novavax thing is interesting because, uh, in a way, it's counting your chickens before they hatch. And that's important because we do need to have some type of anticipation for this. But yeah, um, you've, you've looked at the, the news all around. This might not even be a vaccine that's effective safe or both. And that's why it's important for us to consider that. But something has to be done in terms of anticipating because we want to get the vaccine out there safely to everybody when we do actually have it. But are we not going to end up with this weird patchwork of vaccines the world over as, you know, each jurisdiction develops its, its own vaccine and then, you know, puts it out to people and then, you know, other jurisdictions might say, well, well you know, we don't necessarily believe in your testing. You know, for example, what's going on in Russia? Yeah, that is definitely a, a uh, possibility. In a way, it's somewhat of a quote-unquote good problem to have because if you have a whole bunch of vaccines that work, you know, we have had a situation like that, for example, with the polio vaccine. There have been different forms of the vaccine. If they work, that's the point, and as long as they're safe as well. But I agree, we want to be able to do this in a way that's systematic, do it through uh, rigorous research and not skip any steps on the way to giving something to the rest of the population. Doctor, great to have you on the program. Thank you so much for your perspective, and please stay well. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. That is Dr. Suman Chakrabarti, who is an infectious disease physician at Trillium Health Partners. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch The Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.